0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. I have to ask the listeners to make sure they follow the show. It's imperative to the success of the show and it's super easy to do. If you're listening on Apple, just click on my podcast and there's a little check mark up in the top right hand corner that you click on. And if you're on Spotify, you go to my podcast and there's the word follow directly under my little icon and you just click on that. You'll be following the show. So I appreciate everyone doing that. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Chad Larson, who is an advisor and on the clinical consulting team for Cyrix Laboratories. Dr. Larson holds a doctor of naturopathic medicine degree and a doctor of chiropractic degree. He is a certified clinical nutritionist and a certified strength and conditioning specialist. He particularly pursues advanced developments in the fields of endocrinology, orthopedics, sports medicine, and environmentally induced chronic disease. Welcome to the show, Dr. Larson.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So as I mentioned in your bio, you're on the clinical team for Cyrix Laboratories, which is a specialty lab, and it's a lab that we use at Victory Men's Health. And I want to thank you again because you have been an instrumental part of us implementing that lab into the practice, and you have done a phenomenal job training our providers here at the clinic. So again, thank you very much. We appreciate your time there. But before we kind of dig into it, can you give us a little background on the types of tests CIRIC runs so we can set the stage for the rest of today's conversation?
1: Yeah. As a lab, Cyrex's main focus is immune system dysregulation. So in other words, immune system imbalances, and especially as those imbalances could manifest into autoimmunity. So immune system and as immune system could really increase in issues, oftentimes autoimmunity then manifests. And that's really the sweet spot for Cyrex is uh, those immune-related conditions.
0: So let's jump into some of the food uh, reactivity testing that you guys do. What symptoms or other health conditions would lead you to want to do this testing, or can the testing also be used for just people wanting to health optimize?
1: Yeah, it could be used in both ways. I think primarily it's used from people who have some kind of symptoms. And it doesn't have to be that they have to have an autoimmune condition to run a test like Cyrex. But let's just call it a a chronic condition. You know, somebody gets a headache once a month or once every couple months. We're not really concerned too much about that clinically. That kind of one-off thing happens here and there. But it's the symptoms that really persist over time and become chronic and regular. Those are the ones that we really want to pay more attention to we want to try to dive a little bit deeper into their biology and physiology to see if we could uncover some kind of trigger for that chronic condition or symptom. So it's the chronicity of the symptoms that we mostly want to take a deep dive into. But on the flip side, yeah, some of our testing could definitely be used for the wellness, you know, kind of patient. I've got lots of patients that are, you know, executive types and CEOs and and they're already healthy, and they just want to try to optimize their health and see what level of health that they can bring it up to. And so some of the testing that Cyrex does could be appropriate in those situations as well.
0: Let's talk about some of the vague symptoms that people might not even realize are symptoms that you see. I'm thinking like brain fog, maybe some mild skin outbreaks. Talk about some of those.
1: Yeah, it can be kind of nebulous like that. I mean, You know, you guys work with the human body and the human body is a complex system and these complex systems are, have all kinds of nebulous kind of reactions and it's complicated. And that's the fun part and the challenging part of working with human bodies. It's not like we're, you know, repairing whatever computers or something, not like computers aren't complex as well, but a live system is a very, very complex system. And there's lots of moving parts that we have to think about. So yeah, brain fog is a really common one that sometimes we have to tease out of a consultation that we may be having with a patient or if I'm speaking with a provider about how to think through their, you know, medical history intake is sometimes we have to pull these things out cuz patients don't sometimes recognize you mentioned in brain fog. Unfortunately, more people understand what that means and what that feels like, but a lot of people you have to kind of tease that out they don't realize that they're having these symptoms. They might describe it like they get tired or they lose their focus. But brain fog would be another way to describe it. Migrating muscle pains and, and joint pains, gastrointestinal issues. There's all kinds of types of bloating and abdominal discomfort that a lot of people think are normal. Like, right. oh, okay, I eat food and I I have to go sit down for an hour after I eat because my gut doesn't feel right. And they think that that's just what happens after you eat. Yeah. And it's, that's not normal. And there's things that we can do to take a deeper dive and explain that that's actually a symptom. So yeah, there are headaches, different joint pains and, and things like this, things that people don't recognize as symptoms that uh, could absolutely be related to one of these chronic triggers like, like food sensitivities.
0: Are there any medications or anybody that shouldn't take or do this type of testing that would skew the results?
1: When we do this type of food testing that's based on the immune system's reaction to the foods, and if somebody has a condition that has suppressed their immune system, or they're taking a medication that is designed to be an immunosuppressive medication then that could skew the results. What we're mostly measuring are immune substances called antibodies. And they've got, there's a variety of antibodies. Immunoglobulin G, we call it IgG. There's IgA, IgM. There's one that Cyrex doesn't test called IgE, which we can talk about. But these are the immunoglobulins, and they're based on the immune system. So if somebody is taking an immunosuppressive medication, then that's going to influence the quality Of the test. And some people have a genetic issue that suppresses their immune system. So any kind of immune suppression, whether it's genetic in some way or medication-induced, that could influence this type of testing.
0: So let's dive into the Cyrex Array 10 test a little bit, which is, uh, for the listeners that don't know, that this is the food sensitivity reaction test. And Let's talk about a little bit. There's a lot of food. I think there's 180 different foods raw and cooked that you guys test for. Explain the types of foods. I know you can't get into all of them and kind of what people would expect to see on a result page.
1: So what you get on the result page is you get all the different food categories like meats and proteins and vegetables and fruits. And then we look at things like gums and food colorings and a whole variety of, of different foods. And so you get the different category, and then you get all the different foods that are in that category that we look for. And then what we're ultimately measuring are IgG and IgA antibodies, and we create a a numeric value. So it's quantified. The degree of reaction to that food is quantified, and then it's also qualified by saying that that number is either normal, equivocal, or out of range. And so they get sort of a qualification of what that result means. And then it's also quantified so they can see the actual number and they could visualize just how high above reference range that it is. And the higher the antibody activity is above reference range, the greater the sensitivity that that person has to that food.
0: So something that makes the Cyrix test unique, right, is that you're looking at the foods and raw and cooked. And a lot of the tests don't do that. Is that correct?
1: I don't think that there's any other lab currently that I'm aware of that looks at foods in both the raw and cooked form. And Cyrex is, we can go down the list of Cyrex tests. And Cyrex was first to industry in almost all the panels that we have. Anytime we think about food testing, we should also think about the integrity of the gut barrier. So we may at some point come back and talk about the gut barrier in leaky gut and how that's involved in food sensitivities. But for example, the Leaky Gut test. Before Cyrex came out with the Array Two, the Leaky Gut test, there was uh, kind of a very old test that's been around for, honestly for I think about a hundred years. That actually wasn't even designed for food or for gut barrier integrity; it's more of a nutrient absorption test, and it was not a good test for the gut barrier. But there's nothing else, so a lot of people used it until Cyrex came out with the Array Two, and then lots of other labs have copied it, which is fine. But in other words, they just kind of set the new standard. Same thing with the food arrays. We can talk about a couple other food arrays. There's one called Array 3X, which is all about wheat and gluten. Array 4 has to do with some other gluten-related foods like dairy. And then, like you said, Array 10. The most unique thing probably about the Array 10, like you said, is the combination of raw and cooked. Because what the scientific literature tells us is that when a food is modified in some way, including when it's cooked, It can change the allergenicity of that food. And so we want to test it in the way that most people are consuming it. And so think of like grains and beans and animal protein is pretty much always consumed cooked, but every other lab looks at it in the raw form only. And we're going to miss the way that people actually consume it. Exactly. And some foods are eaten both raw or cooked, like maybe salmon, you know, for uh, sushi. And then it's, you know, people like it cooked as well. Right. So in some cases, we actually test it both ways, but we'll test it in the most common way because that's clinically relevant.
0: Exactly. And
1: to my knowledge, still no, know, and it's, it's hard to do that from a lab standpoint. So that might be why this is right. the one thing that hasn't really been copied yet by their labs is uh, doing the, the raw and cooked uh, form.
0: So let's talk about what happens with the gut barrier when you see a food that someone is having a reaction to on, the, on paper, what's happening inside their body.
1: So the integrity of the intestinal barrier is a big piece of the puzzle when it comes to the concept, sort of the scientific term is called immune system tolerance. It's, we have all of our own tissues that our immune system tolerates. In an autoimmune condition, just as a quick aside, an autoimmune condition is when the immune system starts to sort of quote-unquote attack its own tissues. Like in rheumatoid arthritis, your own immune system is attacking your joints. That's totally abnormal. So, So from an immune tolerance standpoint, the foods that we consume, it's amazing that our immune system doesn't attack all these proteins coming in. But it's because we've got a very complex immune system we tolerate certain food proteins. And this whole concept of immune tolerance is actually quite complex immunologically, but we know that one big piece of the puzzle for somebody to have immune tolerance to a food is the integrity of the intestinal barrier. This barrier system, when it's intact, allows only very, very tiny molecules to pass through to get through into your circulatory system. And these are things like little amino acids in glucose and little tiny fatty acids and zinc and vitamin C and all these micronutrients are allowed to pass through no problem. But a big protein gets stopped at the door and it's not allowed to cross that barrier system. However, when that barrier system is compromised, which we call leaky gut, then a big protein is allowed to pass through that barrier system and get into the circulation superhighway that's going to be met by the immune system. The immune system is going to think that's a bad guy because it's a big, scary protein, and it's going to develop a bunch of antibodies like IgG, IgA. And then that's how, at least one of the ways that a food sensitivity can develop. But it's a, it's a double-sided arrow. One can cause the other. With wheat, by far, being at the top of that list, wheat can cause a leaky gut. But once leaky gut has manifested, other subsequent food sensitivities could develop we develop sensitivities to whatever foods we're eating on a regular basis, especially if they have uh, proteins in them, which pretty much all foods, even vegetables have proteins in them. Then we can become reactive to those proteins as they get past that barrier system. So it's a double-sided error. Leaky gut can cause food sensitivities, but also foods, especially wheat, can cause leaky gut.
0: So why would someone show on these results that they're reactive to a food, but don't physically feel any of the symptoms, or at least they don't think that they do.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And part of that can come from if they have shown that they're reactive to a food and they've eliminated that food, it could be a time frame situation. They might have to eliminate that food for a period of time. Just a couple of days or a week may not be enough. They might have to eliminate that food for a couple months. Because these antibodies that we're talking about can hang out in the bloodstream perpetuating a problem for months. And after elimination of that food for a couple months, then they might notice, oh, yeah, gosh, that bloating that I used to get, I don't get that bloating anymore. Or I just realized I don't get headaches every day that I used to get. So sometimes we have to talk to the patient and sometimes I'll do a symptom survey at the beginning and then we'll do that later on and we'll see that. Many of their symptoms have gone down. And then we show them side by side and they go, oh my gosh, I can't, I forgot all these symptoms that I used to have. So sometimes the answer is there's just not enough time before they can judge whether or not the symptoms have actually decreased. That's one piece of it. But another piece of it could be that the association of the gut barrier. Let's take wheat, for example. Let's say they showed up reactive to wheat and they took wheat out of their diet and they're like, You know what? I still have symptoms. And so, what's going on? What could be going on is they still have leaky gut that the wheat caused. They might have endotoxemia, which we could certainly talk about. It's a really developing problem. Endotoxemia, basically, without going down too much of a rabbit hole, unless you want to go down the rabbit hole, which is um, components inside the gut that are supposed to stay inside the gut. These are toxins that are produced by bacteria in the gut. There's a certain type of bacteria called a gram-negative bacteria. It's mostly considered a bad guy form of bacteria in the gut. It's acceptable to have a certain amount of this. But they produce something called LPS, lipopolysaccharides. LPS is acceptable at a certain degree in the gastrointestinal tract and it usually gets eliminated in a bowel movement. And these kind of things turn over all the time and it's normal. But in leaky gut, LPS could pass through that barrier system and get into the bloodstream that's what the term endotoxemia means is this toxin is now in the bloodstream very abnormal but unfortunately increasingly common over time and this is a big issue that we're having to deal with clinically if you start looking for it we find it all the time and so this could be a reason why a person eliminates a food but their symptoms are ongoing because that food has left a wake of issues Which could be leaky gut and this endotoxemia issue. So sometimes we have to take a more comprehensive approach to the management of their condition beyond just uh, eliminating the food.
0: So, what about on the flip side of that showing up positive, but not consuming that food? Is that a cross reactivity or why would you see that?
1: Yeah, there's a, a concept in the immune system. This has been published in lots of different ways. It's called molecular mimicry. Molecular mimicry is where two different proteins from two different types of foods look similar enough to the immune system to mount a reaction. Let's go back to wheat because there's some some well-known and well-documented cross-reactions of this molecular mimicry that can happen. So let's say somebody's following, let's say they did a wheat test. They were reactive to wheat. They took wheat out of their diet, but their symptoms are still persisting. Maybe they're better. Maybe they're 50% better, but they're not gone all the way. What could be happening is they could be consuming another food that they're also reactive to like dairy, which can cause this type of molecular mimicry. So dairy could be perpetuating their gluten-related symptoms. That's one component of of molecular mimicry. Kind of the opposite side of the coin is, is what you are asking me about, which is what if somebody doesn't think they've ever eaten a food before, or maybe they haven't for five years and it shows up positive on a test that 's how it could happen is they could be developing symptoms excuse me they could be developing antibodies to a food that they 're not currently consuming because there's a protein in that food that to the immune system, looks just like another food that is in their diet, and so okay. their immune system is reacting to the food that 's on the result page that is elevated that they haven 't had for five years because of some other food. A lot of these have been worked out. A good lab like Cyrex will offer those potential cross-reactions. We have a a spec sheet for every food that we have uh, on the list that any of the known cross-reactions that have been published in the scientific literature, we have those known cross-reactions. So a person could cross-reference that and go, okay, oh, okay, you're not eating whatever corn? Okay, well, here are some foods that could sort of mimic corn and cause this type of corn reaction. And then you probably have to eliminate that food and then those antibodies that are elevated will go down over time because of this other food reaction. So hopefully that's not too confusing, but that speaks to the complexity of the immune system. It's right. uh, it's complex, and we have to sometimes connect all those different dots.
0: So you mentioned a few times now wheat, gluten, dairy. Have those foods always been problematic, or is there something t- nowadays, how we're processing these foods that our body's having more of a reaction to them.
1: It's totally different. So let's take wheat specifically. And this probably could be true for other food groups as well. Like dairy has been influenced a lot by human intervention. But yeah, wheat by far is like at the top of the pyramid. And yeah, just to kind of relate that back to Array 10 versus Array 3X. Array 10, while we talked about, it's a very comprehensive panel, looks at 180 foods. There's a deeper dive of wheat. There is a wheat marker on Array 10, but for a much, much deeper dive, Array 3X is better in somebody who we really want to understand if they truly have a wheat or gluten sensitivity. Array 3X would be a better test than Array 10. Array 10 is good to look at everything in their diet, but if we really want to know about wheat, and from my opinion, if I'm considering food sensitivities as an issue for a patient, By far, the first question that I want to answer is, do they have a wheat sensitivity? Assuming wheat is in their diet, that goes right to the top of the list. I'm more concerned about, do they have a wheat sensitivity way before I care about blueberries and pickles and bananas? Although a person can have a reaction to those things, wheat, just statistically, is a much higher chance that they're going to have some kind of reaction.
0: So are you ordering that test first before the Ray-10, or are you ordering them together?
1: Yeah, case by case. Sometimes I will order them together. But if I was pressed on, okay, doc, you need to prioritize because I don't want to do all these panels, for sure I will prioritize Array 3X over Array 10. And I would include um, Array 2, which looks at the intestinal barrier. They just go hand in hand. We can't look at one without the other. And then if it's okay sort of healthcare dollars-wise or just their you know tolerance to laboratory testing, I would want to look at the array four as well to take a deep dive with dairy because dairy comes in like second place when it comes to common food sensitivities. I want to be able to answer wheat first, dairy second, and then I'm interested in all the other foods. And sometimes we want to look at all of it together and get a very comprehensive food evaluation straight out of the gate. But sometimes we'll look at the higher priority things first. So that was the kind of setup for your actual question, which was what's up with wheat and is it more reactive now than it used to be? And for sure, for sure it is. It's not even the same substance that it was, you know, a couple of generations ago where wheat, you know, was a four and a half foot tall sort of grain and, and it was not as hybridized and sort of mutated over time. But now it's, it's, you know, like a foot and a half tall, very sort of stocky It's been hybridized over time to improve the yield per acre because that's how farmers get paid. And this is how they support the food industry that wants this very high gluten content wheat. So that's another part of the hybridization that has gone on for, for generations. And it's increased dramatically in recent times that they food manufacturers want the pasta to be nice and stretchy. They want the bread to be gooey and stretchy. And they want your muffins and buns to be, you know, have all these certain characteristics that are really based on gluten. Gluten is the glue, it's what allows, you know, prevents your pasta from breaking in half, you know, halfway through eating it. And this is what food manufacturers want. So these foods, these gluten has been hybridized and sort of the seeds are sort of spliced with other strains to produce certain high content a gluten and gliadin. So gliadin is the main protein in gluten. Most people have heard of gluten, but not gliadin. And gliadin is the main component of gluten, just to try not to confuse it too much. But the point with that is gliadin has been highly hybridized over time to be very, very high in wheat now. And this is why celiac disease, which is an autoimmune condition associated with gliadin in wheat, has gone something like increased 400% over the last, you know, 60, 70 years or so. And it's because of the gland content has gone up and up and up and up over time. And now they're sticking wheat and gluten in all kinds of things right. in dressings and gravies and sauces. And it's not just, you know, bread and pasta and, and beer anymore. It's on in all these other things used for a whole variety of, of reasons because it's cheap. And it's used in, in for different you know food characteristics. So it's exposure and it's sort of degree of content of these very highly immunogenic proteins. And that's not to even speak about other components of wheat that aren't gluten, like wheat germ agglutinin. This is the lectin fraction of wheat that is completely indigestible by the human gastrointestinal tract. And it's very disruptive to the intestinal barrier. And what it is, wheat glutenin has also been hybridized to be higher and higher over time because it's sort of the plant's natural pesticide. It sort of blocks mold and insect infestation. And so farmers are like, okay, let me try to increase this wheat glutenin so that we've got a hardier uh, crop. But unfortunately, <laughs> this hardy substance is very immunogenic and very disruptive to the gastrointestinal tract. And there's another chemical in there as well called phytates. Phytates are also kind of of a pesticide that are very disruptive, again, to the gastrointestinal tract, really inhibits mineral uh, absorption. Very important minerals like zinc and iron and calcium and magnesium are very disrupted by uh, by these substances that are very common in wheat.
0: And is it farmers driving this or is it really big companies like Monsanto?
1: <laughs> yeah, farmers are just the guy in the middle trying to make a living. I, I really don't blame them. It's, they're being pushed by big ag and by, by big industry and big food that are demanding that these products, that these foods are produced in this way. They're just doing what they're being asked to so they could make a living. So yeah, no, the, the blame is totally at the corporate level, for sure.
0: So as a general recommendation, even if you don't see wheat as an issue on their Array 3, are you still recommending like, hey, I mean, if you can avoid it, I would try to? Or are you like, you know, eat whatever you want when it comes to the pasta?
1: It's a really good question. And over time, as I learn more and more about wheat, and I've been, I've been in practice for over 20 years. and. I knew about wheat even before I got into clinical practice. So it's something that I've taken a deep dive in and it gets deeper and deeper every year as researchers provide more and more information. And I'm getting, I've gotten a lot closer to just being kind of, you know, wheat is just not acceptable for human consumption. <laughs> this is, yeah. there's so many other things that are non-immune based, like the wheat gluten that we just talked about. Those reactions that I just talked about with wheat germaglutinin and with uh, phytates those are non immune reactions, so even if we ran that on the Cyrex array3, which includes wheat germaglutinin antibodies, even if somebody's non-reactive to it, it's still not doing good things for the gastrointestinal tract and the rest of their their body and so yeah, I'm more and more wanting to take wheat out of people's diets, especially if they have whatever, fill in the blank, you know, chronic condition. Yeah. Because now it's, there's so much information around how wheat and gluten and these different components in wheat have, uh, have caused a whole variety of, of issues.
0: So speaking of additives, one of the things that I am positive for on my Cyrix Array 10 is the gum gars. And it's also a substance, if people don't know, that kind of makes the food thicker or hold together. And I'm so frustrated to have a sensitivity to this because I've noticed that they're using it as a filler in foods like hummus, all these non-dairy coffee creamers, non-dairy cheeses. So let's touch on the gums and educate people on what that really means when they turn turn over a food label. And are all gums bad for you or an
1: i don 't think all gums are bad for us, but there are some gums that are really bad for individuals, you know like yourself. you notice that you 've got antibodies reacting to certain gums, and so you should be aware of those and obviously you started looking for those and when you start looking, you see them like you notice all over in foods, and it 's frustrating because there's things that you might really like to eat and there's gums in there, so hopefully you can find some sources that don't have the gums but yeah it's getting harder and harder over time because the gums provide some I want to say shortcuts, maybe that's an unfair characterization, but there's ways that you can make food like last longer on the shelf, have better mixability. So the consumer is not frustrated that they have to mix it up and it kind of causes certain emulsification and blending of all the ingredients. So, so the consumer doesn't have to, you know, blend it up themselves and things like that. So it's all these like conveniences, but unfortunately they can come with some downsides. And like many things in the diet and probably in other ways in general, it's the dose that makes the poison. And there could be micro amounts that in some people, they might react to gums and other people, they can probably get away with a certain amount. And the gum situation is, it's kind of all over in the medical literature. You see a whole variety of things. You see that, oh, it can help to you know, improve blood sugar regulation. It can make a person feel more satiated after a meal so that they have their appetite goes down. So they're not eating as much. But you also find the flip side of that, which is it can be very disruptive to the gastrointestinal tract and cause bowel distress. It can cause bloating and distension and be associated with things like that. And what we're understanding from a deeper level, things like carrageenan could actually disrupt the integrity of the intestinal microbiome. Once the microbiome is disrupted, that can lead to leaky gut. And then we're back into that whole leaky gut, food sensitivity, immune reactivity thing. So yeah, it is kind of case by case. And in your case, you were smart enough to test it, to take some of the guesswork out, and you were reactive to that. But there are probably other gums that you were non-reactive to. Correct. So we have to assume when we see a food that's non-reactive, maybe the first question that we have to ask is, is the person exposed to that food? Because maybe you've never had a particular gum that shows up normal that doesn't mean that you don't have a sensitivity to it it just means that that you haven't been exposed to it yet but assuming that you've been exposed to all these different gums if you're just reactive to one you know the way i'd read those results is that's the one that you should stay away from and the other ones you know be aware of them and try not to maybe overconsume them since gums is already kind of on your immune system radar but if you're not currently reacting to it you can probably get away with some of it to some degree
0: So you also, on the Cyrex test, look at food colorings, and that seems to be another ingredient that's everywhere. And let's use Gatorade, for example. You know, that's been marketed to athletes and our children for decades now. You turn around a Gatorade bottle, it has gums in it. It has food coloring in it. It has caramel coloring in it. What are the impacts that this food coloring has on our health?
1: Yeah, Gatorade is a good example. They've really lost the plot over time. I mean, the original Gatorade, I think, was pretty legit stuff back when it was at the university level, but it's been you know, very commercialized. And they put in all the cheap, crappy ingredients now, and including the food colorings. It's just, it's a total disaster. And yeah, these, these food dyes and colorings create sort of a covalent bond with our tissues. And that can be very immunoreactive. There's no positive studies on these food colorings. Yeah. There's like there's nothing at all good. In fact, it just goes from bad to worse depending on which coloring you talk about. But there's some that, you know, are more studied and have more adverse effects that have been documented than others, but it's on my fairly short list of non-negotiables. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are negotiable from case to case, uh food-wise, but food colorings and food dyes are are on that short list of non-negotiables. It's just, why should anybody eat anything that has these food dyes in there? So this one, yeah, it would be nice to see from, you know, on the Array 10 if somebody is actually reactive to them, but more and more, they're just on that non-negotiable list. Even without testing, people should just not be exposed to these things.
0: Yeah, and Gatorade with their plastic bottles too. You watch a football game, the sidelines and all the athletes, you know, drinking their Gatorade out of those plastic bottles. I mean, hello, we've been educated on plastic and the phthalates and as a you know endocrine disruptor for years now and they're just still promoting it and still doing it they've really are a disappointment in my opinion very frustrating
1: i totally agree it's very disappointing and yeah they're they've got you know so much revenue and so much funding you think they just make this amazingly healthy drink and right. do all kinds of cool Why studies not? and really get into the hydration you know category which is i think there's a, a dearth of good hydrating substances out there. And it's now just become like a Coca-Cola kind of deal. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, they've they've missed some some key opportunities, I think.
0: And I don't understand why the trainers or team doctors or, you know, the whole NFL MLB organization hasn't said, uh, you know, enough's enough. Like, you know, we have to move to silicone bottles or glass bottles and better ingredients for our players. And I, I don't know
1: I've got a, a very unproven, cynical thought on that, that I would actually be surprised if we went back to those on the field in those big Gatorade containers and actually looked at what's in there. I don't know that they all have Gatorade in them. I don't think
0: Gatorade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would, be, it, it would be interesting to know I what's think some actually of them are just in there.
1: Water or you know some other kind of substance that the players actually want, or like the trainers are like, look, this Gatorade is causing people to cramp up and get sick and get bloated while they're playing. I just want to put some other kind of hydrating agent in here. So yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, Gatorade obviously is providing a lot of funds to these organizations. And so their their product is going to be out there up front as just kind of an ongoing commercial. But yeah, probably a lot of those bottles don't even have Gatorade in them.
0: So another craze is the plant-based foods. That seems to be another area where they're able to hide ingredients. And I think I saw you do a webinar or talk on this. What are some of the ingredients that they're sneaking into these plant-based foods that we need to be uh, leery of?
1: I'm concerned about the plant-based movement because uh, they're not actually talking about plants. You know, There's some key diet categories or pillars that I, I like to share with my patients. And it's a very plant rich protocol but it's not plant based and i think there's a difference between the two and i'm a big fan of plants in lots of different categories of vegetables and they've been studied you know with great quality studies and lots of cool micronutrients and important phytonutrients and things in plants but the plant based movement is starting to incorporate lots of processed plant foods and it's the processing of the plant foods that make it i think poisonous to the system. Yeah, and they're introducing all kinds of you know different they're lab born ingredients that should not even be in the human body and i think are really wreaking havoc on the intestinal microbiome and then its effect on the intestinal barrier. So yeah, we've got a lot of work to do in that space because that's a growing space and hopefully as that becomes more and more dominant, that there will be an equal kind of pushback against it and back to understanding, you know, whole healthy foods and not processed. So, I generally don't have any issue with somebody being vegetarian. We can talk about vegan, that's a bit different. But, you know, if somebody is choosing vegetables as a dominant part of their diet, I think that's awesome. Depending on what their health goals are. Um, I think most people probably are a little low in their overall protein content. And oftentimes, I'm increasing a person's uh, degree of protein. So vegetarians and vegans, it gets a little bit more difficult. But yeah, this processed uh, food plant-based movement is a big concern. And I'm having to educate people a lot about that.
0: So expand on your comment that you just made about being vegan.
1: It's an extreme diet. If we go back to our Our physiology and the way that we've developed over time as humans, we've been around for a couple hundred thousand years. And prior to that, you know, where there were hominids that were kind of pre-humans and we've developed a certain way of eating and our physiology has developed in a way to process those foods. And we're certainly omnivores. It's amazing what humans can get away with eating, but a long-term vegan diet, is oftentimes not done correctly and there's some opposite extremes and we can talk about something like an unhealthy keto diet or a carnivore diet which is almost on the opposite side of the spectrum these extreme diets are difficult to do correct over time so we're just kind of picking on veganism here for a moment it's very difficult to do correct over time and oftentimes people start taking shortcuts and they start consuming snacks that are vegan packaged foods that are vegan and the package says vegan and vegan friendly. And if you look at the ingredients, it's like this stuff doesn't even exist in nature. And so why are people eating it? And they want to get foods that are shaped like chicken and are supposed to taste like chicken or shaped like a burger. It's like, if you're vegan, why do you want something shaped like a burger to kind of try to fake yourself out? What's going on there? And so it's very difficult to do right do correctly over time, and so people start taking a lot of shortcuts, and I've done lots and lots of blood work on vegans, and some who do it right, their blood work looks awesome, and everything is in check. More often than not, it's a disaster, and they look like a sick person. Tons of deficiencies, all kinds of imbalances. Many of them have blood sugar dysregulation, and you look at their diet, it's so carbohydrate rich that it's throwing off their blood sugar balance, and they're becoming pre-diabetic, so yeah, it's it's difficult to do right. It's difficult to do right, especially over time.
0: And what were you going to reference on the keto diet?
1: Similar thing where it's difficult to do that correctly over time in a healthy way. Uh, some people can absolutely do it. I know people that have been following a very long-term ketogenic diet and it works great for them because they really, really know what they're doing. And a lot of people take those same, same shortcuts as the vegans and This package says keto, and that package says keto, and they start eating, again, all these packaged foods that say keto and keto-friendly, and the food manufacturers are playing all these tricks by putting in a bunch of fibers and saying that you know there's a certain amount of net carbs in there that are low enough to make it actually keto-friendly, and they're just playing all these games that are not really health-based. They're just marketing hyperbole.
0: So I want you to crystal ball a testing regimen. And let's just use me as the scenario. So I walk in and I, you order an array 10 on me. I have a handful of sensitivities. What do you do with me? What do you do with me next? And when would you want me to come back? And what follow-up testing would you do on me?
1: More often than not, I'd probably only run array 10 if you were already following a gluten-free and dairy-free diet. If you're not following a gluten-free, dairy-free diet, I'd want to also include Array 3X and Array 4. So we have a look at those foods as well. So, And also, let's say you're gluten-free, dairy-free, and I've only run Array 10. Hopefully, I've also run Array 2 because, like I said, they just go hand in hand. I can't fully understand your Array 10 without knowing the integrity of your intestinal barrier because what if I get your Array 10 back and there's a whole bunch of foods that are reactive I can make an assumption that that's because you have leaky gut, but with the human body and, you know, with good medicine, we don't want to make a lot of assumptions, especially if there's a way to not make that assumption. And I'd rather be able to have the diagnostic information to be more of a sharpshooter with my recommendations. So yeah, to your question, I've run Array 10. I found a number of foods. I would explain these foods to you and I would explain where you're getting these foods Because remember, they might not be from the actual food. They can be found in other processed foods that things can be snuck in there. So I would try to explain where you might be getting exposure to these foods and help you help to educate you on how to avoid further exposure to those foods so that your immune system doesn't keep reacting to those foods. And then again, if I've run the array two and I see that there's some gut barrier issues, I'm going to help support the integrity of your intestinal barrier. And then from there we're going to monitor your progress. We're going to monitor your symptoms and check in with you on some kind of regular basis. How are you doing? Any issues with avoiding certain foods? Oh, okay. You're having a hard time avoiding that food. All right. Here's a good, you know, replacement. Here's a way that you could keep avoiding that food, but keep eating the things that you like to eat. And there's ways that we can be creative around that to help you kind of, you know, keep you going. And then uh, if I've done some intestinal repair, that's the next follow up. If I found a baseline that you have some leaky gut. I want to retest the integrity of your gut barrier in three to six months, something like that. And so I want to retest that. Before I consider reintroduction of any of the foods that you were reactive to on the Array 10, I have to determine that your gut barrier is no longer compromised. Because if your gut barrier is still compromised, and we want to reintroduce a food to see how you're going to respond to it, You're not going to respond well. You still have leaky gut, and so you're going to produce antibodies to that food all over again. So that's why the integrity of the gut barrier baseline is so important. So we have something to compare to, and give us some knowledge about when you could potentially reintroduce a previously reactive food. Otherwise, we're just using time, and time is just too arbitrary. We want to have some evidence that you actually have a healthy gut barrier that can reintroduce these previously reactive foods.
0: So let's say my 2, 3 and 4 were fine, which they are in me. So I only have these dozen food sensitivities, some borderline, you know, some out of range. Do you want to see me and I let's say I eliminate the food in my diet. Are we going to retest that every 6 months, every year? What do you think if money is no object here, how often would you want me retesting?
1: There's so many different ways that we can go with this. So it's it's very case by case and obviously I will have known a lot more about your health goals, or will have known a lot more about your health concerns, about any symptoms, and we've done a whole, you know, health history, etc. So just going from the information that you provided for me, I would have you come off those foods for a period of time, monitor your symptoms, or just monitor your health, not necessarily symptoms, because maybe maybe you're a well patient. We haven't even talked about that. But if you're relatively well, I and mean, you're just trying to like, okay, how much better Optimize. can I feel? Let me, yeah, yeah let, me, let me take these foods out, and then see how you feel over time. And then at some point, particularly if there's a food that has been eliminated because you're reactive to it, but you really like to have that food in your life, you're probably going to want to try to reintroduce that at some point. So I'll probably uh, have you off that food for some time and beyond that it depends on what question we're trying to answer are we trying to answer do you still have an immune reaction to that food or have you regained tolerance to that food or a third one could be have you thoroughly eliminated that food from your diet and so these are three legitimate questions that could be answered by follow-up testing if we wanted to first see have you successfully eliminated those foods we can recheck you in, you know, rerun the test in, in six months and go, okay, what foods are you still reactive to at that time? Because then we might have to think about are you getting some inadvertent exposure to a food that you think you've eliminated, but maybe we need to dive a little bit deeper into your diet. So that's one question that could be answered. Another question is all right, have you regained tolerance to any of these foods? Can your immune system now tolerate consuming that food again? Of course, like I said before, I'd rather uh, look at an array two first before we consider reintroducing a food. So let's say we run array two at that time and it's still normal. You don't have any signs of leaky gut. Then, okay, let's introduce the food, you know, say maybe your favorite one on the list. And first of all, just symptomatically see how you tolerate it for a few days, have maybe a serving for the next few days and see how you tolerate it just symptomatically. And if you're like, you know, I feel like I'm tolerating it. I don't feel like any there's any return of any symptoms and I feel good. Then I would probably have you consume that regularly until we retest again and see if the antibodies have have come back up again. So that all sounds a little bit time-consuming, but that's sort of the best practices of how we would want to use the a future retest to help inform us of, of what we want to do ongoing.
0: But you're telling these patients that even though there's have a food sensitivity at this time, that with some diet adjustments, they might be able to reintroduce that food back into their life?
1: I think it's possible. I've seen it many times. Immune system tolerance can return to a food. There's two foods, and I bet you can guess which ones, that once we lose immune system tolerance in most people, they do not regain tolerance. Our good old friends, wheat and dairy. These ones... And the reason why they're at the top of that pyramid is because once we lose immune system tolerance to wheat, we've eliminated it, you did gut barrier repair, you did all the right things, you've eliminated 100% as hard as that is, if we go off of it for a year and then reintroduce it into your diet and then recheck the food sensitivities, most people have a return of antibodies to wheat. It's just, once we lose immune tolerance, it's just such a reactive substance that most people never regain immune tolerance to it. Dairy comes in second. But of course, this can be tested on the individual basis. We don't have to say that everybody falls into this category, but it can be tested. And you, and again, it's a bit of a process, but, you know, hey, this is your health that we're talking about and it's worth the process. So it can be tested on an individual basis to see, in fact, have they regained tolerance to it. Maybe some people can with these very reactive foods like wheat and dairy, but they're lower potential. But other foods, eggs and potatoes and whatever, pickles and blueberries, oftentimes when we see these reactive, yes, they can more often than not regain tolerance to those foods.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, we're approaching on our hour right now. As the listeners can tell, this food sensitivity, gut permeability is very complex. There's a lot of moving parts. So Dr. Larson, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you want to add?
1: No, I think that's the key thing. This is great information that you're providing for your listeners. This is something that you know most people should think about at some point in their life to check these foods because this is one thing that is for sure dragging through a person's body every single day. And who knows if there's something that is, you know, triggering a reaction, even if it's kind of subclinical or kind of under the radar, it could be something that puts them at risk later in life if they keep consuming something that they're reactive to. So, so no, this is great service. And uh, I'm glad that you asked me to join in the conversation.
0: Well, I appreciate you being on here and uh, you have a great day.
1: All right, you too. Thank you.